Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Lacey, Professor of Strategic Studies. Today, we are discussing the Battle of Normandy and some of the other European campaigns of World War II with our guest, Dr. Peter Caddick Adams. He's the author of six books, including the upcoming Sand and Steel, A New History of D-Day, as well as Monty and Rommel, Parallel Lives, and Snow and Steel, The Battle of the Balls, 1944 and 45. Having read the last two of those so far, I could definitely attest that they're worth looking at. Additionally, he has written hundreds of articles, been a consultant for numerous documentaries and television programs, served as a lecturer in military and security studies at the United Kingdom Defense Academy. He's done that for the last 20 years, and is also a retired colonel from the United Kingdom Army Reserve. He is also a world-class battlefield guide, as our students and faculty can attest after our recent study of the Normandy campaign. Peter, thank you for coming on to the show. Jim, it's great to be on this side of the Atlantic. Thank you. I doubt my introduction does you justice, as there are many other things you want our audience to know about you and your work, particularly the release date of the upcoming book, Sand and Steel, what it includes, and you can even spend some time talking about the book I enjoyed the most, uh, Battle of the Bulge, 1945, Snow and Steel. Well, Sand and Steel comes out on the 30th of May, uh, just in time for the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. Um, I was never intending to write a book about D-Day. I was going to write about the Normandy campaign, and I just got bogged down in the first 24 hours and never got beyond. And that's because I thought I knew the D-Day story. And the deeper I dug, the more I realized I didn't know it at all. There's just so much there. Uh, And partly because we start on the sands or in the surf on the morning of D-Day. And what we forget is there's over a year of preparation, planning and rehearsals and training exercises beforehand. And they're never dealt with in any of the histories. We've all seen the film Saving Private Ryan. Uh, and there are many people who could be for- forgiven for thinking that the invasion starts in a landing craft uh, in the surf and people had come straight from the United States. Uh, and, of course, there's over a year's worth of preparation and training in the United Kingdom. Um, Analysing that, how people trained and prepared, that's the real reason why D-Day goes so well. And the astonishing figure I came up with was that more people were killed in training for D-Day than actually died in combat on the 6th of June 1944. And we forget that to make an operation, whatever level of war, go well, relies on the quality of the training beforehand. Uh, And therefore, the success of D-Day was really due to the fact that the training was relevant and necessarily brutal. I like to go off script for a second here because you said something that's always interested me. And I don't think... to this day, a lot of Americans know that this happened. Uh, the casualties were higher in training, which shows that they were training hard. Uh, but there was also one incident that caused a lot of casualties, and that was when the e-boats got into our training. And if you got know any, have anything on that and you want to talk about that for a minute, I think the audience would appreciate it. 
There is the uh, Exercise Tiger, which is uh, Seven Corps training rehearsal, uh, last big amphibious rehearsal uh, before the invasion. This is late May 1944. Um, the entire amphibious task force are out uh, doing a beach landing, uh, and on the first evening, some of the troops had already got ashore. German motor torpedo boats get in amongst the, the landing ships and the landing craft uh, and release a, a lot of torpedoes. Uh, and the casualty count is between 700 and 900 GIs killed. To that, we must add at least the same number who end up in hospital, um, who, who don't get a mention in the history books. Um, we were enormously worried because we thought that that was the compromise of the whole operation. Uh, ten officers who were cleared to top secret about the invasion plans were amongst the missing with their briefcases containing the plans. Uh, and to us at the time, it seemed that the Germans had, must have known what was going on, uh, had uh, bounced uh, an invasion rehearsal, knew what they were doing, uh, and may well have made off with the dead and the plans. Uh, and in fact, it was just a, a ghastly coincidence. The Germans spotted what they thought was a coastal convoy, um, attacked it, had no idea that it was uh, an invasion rehearsal, and when they left, they still were unaware of what it was that they'd attacked. Uh, so we um, were remarkably fortunate. However, the US Navy, who were furious that the uh, British had let this happen, were determined to teach the Germans a lesson and were about to send the battleships that had just made it across uh, the Atlantic over to France to blast the e-boat bases in Cherbourg and Le Havre, which is where they come from. And very nearly did. And it was only hard talking by the British Admiralty who said, if you do that, the Germans will certainly realise what it is that they managed to, to nearly achieve. Um, because there was a chance that they, the Germans were not aware that this was actually a rehearsal for the invasion. So that didn't take place. Uh, and to me, you know, that's a great lesson in if something goes wrong, whether at a, a, an operation or a strategic level, if your speed of reaction is such that the, the reaction is, is a knee-jerk or an elbow and you haven't considered the wider context, you could make the situation worse uh, and not better. And had we sent the US fleet over to northern France, uh, we might well have compromised the invasion without having realised that that's what we were doing. It's a very fascinating story, one that I always liked looking into, and I still think the maybe your book is going to cover it in greater detail than ever before, but I think there's still a great book to be written on that incident. Well, let's go on. This year at McWar, we spent a lot of time immersing our students in the Normandy campaign in a program we call Campaigning for Strategic Effect. We did this to both build a deeper understanding of how leaders design and implement multiple campaigns to achieve a synergistic effect. And um, your research, your writing, seems to follow a similar course. You've written on campaigns as well as the two dominant personalities of the Battle of Normandy, Field Marshals Montgomery and Rommel. Given the dominance that each of these two men had on planning and the conduct of the campaign, how do you think each commander viewed his strategic position at the start of the campaign? Jim, that's a very interesting question um, because their roles and purposes, even in their own minds, I think were very different. Uh, Rommel is serving under another much older field marshal uh, who holds the strings of power uh, as Commander-in-Chief West, and that's Field Marshal von Rundstedt. Um, Rommel was originally assigned to the West to assess the strength of the Atlantic Wall. 
in December 1943. Um, he sends back a report that it's basically rubbish. Um, there's nothing there. It's a fiction of everybody's imagination and is then given the job of creating the wall that actually uh, hadn't pre-existed. Um, but he's not a fortress engineer. What he is is a propaganda icon. Um, his appointment is really to reassure the German people um, that Germany will be better defended in the West and to restore German morale amongst the German army in the West that they now have a first-rate commander um, who has beaten the British in battle before. Um, so that's how I think Rommel sees himself. Uh, he's a great tactician, but my assessment is he's not a great operational commander. He immerses himself in details uh, at the tactical level far too often, and that reappears all the way through his military career. He's got no understanding of uh, logistics, uh, and of course he's never um, attended the Marine uh, War College courses. Uh, and in fact, he's never attended any courses beyond that of sort of tactical commander at sort of company level. He hasn't been to the Kriegsschule, um, the, the sort of course that the German army would have run for its colonels. So his knowledge he's, uh, is, is of a limited extent. He's a very inspirational commander uh, with a lot of charisma. Um, but he's a different kind of person to his nemesis, Field Marshal Montgomery. Um, Bernard Montgomery, uh, of course, is trading on the reputation of having commanded the British uh, at Alamein in North Africa, fought through Sicily uh, and partly through Italy. Um, he really gets the job of commanding the land forces in the invasion phase of D-Day um, because he's the best known military commander in the United Kingdom. Um, of course, he is going to be an equal to Omar, Omar Bradley later on in the campaign uh, rather than his superior. Um, so, does Montgomery come with an operational understanding? Yes, I think he's better at gluing the, the, the bits and pieces together uh, at a higher level of war. But Montgomery fails, he has his flaws, um, because he doesn't understand political or coalition war-making. He doesn't understand that actually we are, the British are reliant on their American allies, and to a certain extent on the French and the Canadians uh, and all the other um, uh, political uh, uh, parts of the coalition against the Germans. Um, and, and whilst they may not figure uh, as highly in military terms, of course, politically, they're all equal members of the coalition against the Germans. And Montgomery never gives them that respect. So he is a a player, a military player, who looks down on people who don't have as much military experience as himself. And sadly, that includes the Americans. So he's never going to be as effective a, a coalition commander as he might be because he doesn't understand that level of war. So both operate in different ways. They're in command for different reasons. Both have their flaws, which is what fascinates me. You basically answered the next question I had in my head. It could, you know, what was Montgomery like? What, uh, how do we compare him? I would like to hear something in a moment, if you can, just compare him to Bradley, who you already mentioned, and Bradley's effectiveness. But even more important than that in the limited time we have here, I read some things you have written recently about the more you learn about Eisenhower, the more respect you have for him. Some of that might be you're learning about his president, uh, learning about Eisenhower as his president, but I assume most of it is as a military leader. So I'd like to hear about that and 
What has changed as you do more and more studies? Eisenhower is a puzzle to any student of military history because he has not commanded men in battle until Operation Torch at three-star rank in November 1942. So what are his credentials to rise right to the top um, with no combat experience and, frankly, very little um, command experience? His route has purely been through planning, uh, and he is the top of his generation as a staff officer. Um, and World War II requires people to be able to understand allies and coalition partners um, and to command at enormous levels with huge numbers of personnel and resources uh, at one's disposal. Uh, and that's why Eisenhower succeeds. He's, he's enormously charming. Uh, and although military command isn't about the popularity stakes, what he is very good at doing is smoothing ruffled feathers and making sure that every coalition partner feels included. Um, and where there are clashes of personalities, he's very good at unscrambling that, at making sure that people feel loved and wanted and, and, and part of the team. And that sounds quite soft um, and uh, unmacho. Um, but in 1940s Europe, what you have to remember is that no one nation can win World War II on their own. The Russians can't, the Americans can't, the Brits can't. And the moment you take that on board and you realize you are a part of a bigger coalition, even if you're, you're commanding the biggest United States force, you have to operate at a different level with a little humility by using your personality uh, and helping things through. And that's what Eisenhower does. Um, he's not always liked by his military colleagues because some people dismiss him as being too political. Uh, and I think that's what he is. He's probably a politician in uniform um, rather than a general who later becomes a politician. So those are his attributes. Um, he might not have fared well in the First World War. He might not have fared well uh, at another era. And it's time and chance. Um, but those, that's skill set I think is unique and that's why I admire him every time I learn a little bit more about him Alright, very interesting uh, I, I too have come to the conclusion that most of us have misunderstood Ike and uh, he's one of the greatest commanders if not just World War II, maybe all of military history considering what he accomplished and as you said his lack of credentials to accomplish any of that um, let's get back to your book for a few minutes, um, or as long as you want to talk about it, because I find it fascinating that you have un developed and found this new story about D-Day that can cover close to a thousand pages, and only cover the first 24 hours. So as you were doing this deep dive, it's a question I've often asked myself, I've even asked students, was there anything the Germans could have done on D-Day that would have defeated the invasion or changed the entire outcome of military history, given the circumstances that they faced on June 6th. I don't want to say, yeah, if they attend divisions there, but was there anything on June 6th that could have changed the day? So the question is, could the Germans have prevailed on D-Day at all? Was there any chance? Um, and I think the dice are loaded against them right from the beginning. I don't think there's the slightest chance that the Germans could have won, and it doesn't matter how many books we write um, uh, about counterfactual history, uh, they've got too many things going against them. Uh, and we tend to look at the Normandy campaign in terms of the steely-eyed, 
Nazi-motivated killers who arrive and fight the campaign in Normandy. But those are the guys who roll up with their tanks and their SS flashes and all the fancy kit. Those are the guys who arrive from June the 7th. And the German army in Normandy on D-Day is a different creature. Um, 30% of them aren't German at all. They're Poles, they're Czechs, they're Ukrainians, they're Russians, who have, by one means or other, found themselves uh, in in the German army wearing field grey, often reluctantly, uh, and uh, not even speaking German, uh, and they were put there for internal security duties to take on the French resistance. Never a thought of being in combat against the Western Allies. Um, so that's one factor that plays against uh, German efficiency. Um, another is the fact that uh, a huge proportion of the German armed forces rely on horses for mobility uh, in France. The German army in France uh, has over, or the German 7th Army in Normandy, uh, has over 100,000 horses on its strength. Um, so they're static. They're not able to move very quickly, they're, thus they're not flexible. Um, thirdly, uh, apart from the Russians uh, and the horses, those reserves, infantry reserves that can move around, are generally issued with bicycles uh, but are not uh, motor vehicles. There's very little fuel for transport, never mind the fact that there are not many vehicles, never mind the fact that a lot of Germans don't know how to drive, uh, but a lot can ride a bike. Uh, so the Germans are in the business of issuing huge numbers of their forces. Every battalion, for example, has a company of bicyclists. Uh, and this is what German speed of manoeuvre relies on. Throughout the Normandy campaign, and we look at bicyclists now and we might laugh. Um, it's absolutely laughable. But it is a, a very German solution to the problem of lack of fuel, lack of vehicles, um, shortage of all sorts of things. Uh, and so that does give the Germans some mobility. But... All of a sudden, you start to add all of this up. Huge numbers of cyclists, huge numbers of horses, a lot of people who don't even speak German, and you've suddenly got this huge war machine that sounds very, very impressive, but actually is incapable of doing very much. They can't move uh, around the battlefield very quickly. Uh, and if we add to that that ger every German in Normandy has a weapon, but a lot of these have come from plundered arsenals in Russia, in France, in Belgium, in Italy. Um, it's a quartermaster's nightmare. Uh, they're using huge numbers of different calibers, of uh, shells for their artillery, uh, even of small arms uh, for their rifles and, uh, and machine guns. And that makes for an enormously inefficient uh, armed force. Uh, of the Germans in Normandy, uh, the remaining 70% are mostly those who are recovering from wounds in Russia uh, and therefore of lower medical status. Uh, and of those, their average age in Normandy, the German armed forces that we're facing on June 6th, uh, their average age is 36 years old. The average age of the Allies heading across the channel in their direction is 21. So I think the dice are loaded from the start against the Germans ever managing to prevail. But we do have one, one, we do have one enemy, and that's the weather. And we can't control it. And the weather was the one thing that was capable of sinking D-Day uh, and stopping it in its tracks, as it very nearly did. Well, since you brought it up, I guess we have to 
explain what you mean by that. There are some people, probably a lot of people, who do not know how close they came to cancer in this thing and uh, how important the meteorologist making the opinions, or as, you, as I think I learned from you, he wasn't a meteorologist at all, um, came to having D-Day canceled, uh, not of his own volition, of course. But if you could spend a few minutes on that, I'm sure the audience would appreciate it. Weather is hugely important. We tend to dismiss it now because we're used to the idea of, of 24-hour forecasts. Um, but meteorology was far more primitive in those days. There were no satellites. There, there were no um, uh, fax maps and all the rest of it. Uh, so it was very difficult predicting anything further than 24 hours out. Uh, and you relied on weather ships in the North Atlantic uh, and uh, readings of, of weather taken across the United Kingdom uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so if you imagine that the, the whole concept of D-Day is moving a force from southern England to Normandy across 100 nautical miles of sea that was open to the worst that the Atlantic could do to you, um, and that storms roll in from the Atlantic on a very regular basis. Uh, and although you are launching an attack at, uh, in June, uh, when the weather is uh, usually reasonably good, um, there are all sorts of local factors uh, that can work against you. Uh, the tidal range is about 20 feet in the channel. That's very high. Um, you want to land at a low tide so all the German obstacles will be exposed. Uh, you want to cross uh, at night uh, but with a full moon or nearly full moon, so your paratroopers and glider troops have a, a, a hope of landing in the right place. Uh, you want low winds, so your paratroopers won't be scattered. Uh, you want calm seas, so the fleet won't be spread out all over the place uh, or sink uh, and the troops on board drown. Uh, and so if you want to coral all those factors together, the moon, the waves, the tide, uh, and so on, um, you have only a very few days in May, June and July and August 1944 uh, at, at which to launch your invasion uh, and that is uh, immaterial of the channel storms that, that brew up every now and again. Um, and Eisenhower is, is aware that there is uh, there are very few windows and he's at the, really at the mercy of, of Atlantic weather storms. Um, and the weather in May is brilliant. It's beautifully sunny. The channel is calm uh, and everything is perfect. Uh, and the weather starts to deteriorate in early June uh, and the Allied commanders get extremely nervous and eventually so nervous that the chosen date for invasion, June 5th, has to be slipped by 24 hours to June 6th because uh, a, a very severe channel storm seems to be uh, affecting the, the, the whole viability of the in, invasion. Um, this is where our meteorology uh, prevails. We have a, a wide range of weather ships and lighthouse keepers who spot a tiny lull in the storm, uh, and Eisenhower, on really quite slender evidence, then decides to go ahead on June the 6th uh, when the conditions that he needs are barely adequate. Uh, it's an enormously brave decision, uh, and it shows that a, a, a supreme commander, certainly in his position, has to trust uh, the advice of experts. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's always a difficult call if you're out of your comfort zone and you're having to trust the expertise of those below you. Uh, how much store do you set by their advice? Well, on, on this occasion, 
uh, he goes with their advice uh, and it works. Um, but the real nub of this is that had Eisenhower delayed D-Day from June 6th, the next possible date would have been June the 19th. Now, the weather forecast a few days before for June 19th was calm seas and fair weather. And had we set sail and landed in France on June the 19th, the worst channel storm of the 20th century had meanwhile blown up. If we'd landed on June the 19th, uh, the troops there would have been marooned. Everyone else crossing the channel would have had to turn back because we had this tempest of the century. Um, the air cover would have been impossible. Paratroopers would have been widely scattered. The invasion would certainly have failed. Uh, and those already on the beaches would have been rounded up by the Germans. So Eisenhower didn't know it on June the 6th, but actually that was the only date. And had he delayed, the weather would have proved to be our enemy and would have destroyed the invasion. That's how close it is. So if we're looking at why D-Day might have failed, it wouldn't have been the Germans, it would have been the weather. Very interesting. Uh, yes, as you said, it took tremendous courage to do something like that and uh, a lot of luck. And as Napoleon used to say, I'd rather have lucky generals than good generals. And if you could get good and lucky at the same time, you really, you really have something magnificent there. Finally, I'm going to ask you a question I'm going to ask as many people as I can during these podcasts who have something to offer in this realm, because I think it's really important to what we do here and our students. You've spent a lot of time studying the operational level of war. As the U.S. military and the United States Marine Corps returns its focus to possible conflicts with near-peer competitors, particularly Russia, and a return to operational maneuver, there are many overarching lessons from World War II that could help guide us. In U.S. studies, and as you looked at it, did you spend any time, and if you did, can you share it with us, thinking about what they could learn from World War II that would make a difference in a future fight? As I speak, I'm about to go off to Europe, and I'm visiting the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, and they are very exposed to the Russian menace, however you define that, whether it's military, whether it's cyber, whether it's economic. Um, but they are NATO partners, uh, and their safety and security relies entirely on coalition partners because none of them are big enough to defend themselves on their own. And for that, you could read a lot of other countries, not just in Europe, but across the world. Um, world War II focused minds that we were a wider coalition. We all relied on each other. We all di brought different uh, kinds of military expertise to the table, whether it was the Poles and intelligence. They brought the first Enigma machine uh, out of Europe that allowed us to crack the German codes. Um, lots of different na different nations um, bought expertise, bought cultural expertise. Uh, and uh, although we talk a lot about NATO and other defensive alliances, we still think in terms of national force. It's, it's the American force, it's the British Army, it, it's whoever really principally driving this or that campaign or this or that strategic thinking. Um, and this is a time, I think, uh, with a resurgent Russia... Uh, and a menacing China, where we need to work out who our friends and allies are, far more than we've probably had to do in the last 70 years. Uh, there's talk of a new Cold War. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think we've been in a Cold War for at least the last five years. Uh, and uh, with all sorts of tensions, political, yes, but also tensions of budgets, um, we, we, we need to focus on what we learned from World War II, which is that you need your 
friends and allies to be as close as possible. Uh, and in 1944, the story of D-Day, that was all about friends being prepared to put their young men's lives in harm's way for the greater good. Uh, and perhaps that's the direction of travel our minds need to travel in today. Very interesting viewpoint. I want to thank you for sharing it with us. Dr. Peter Kadic adams thank you for being on the show. I know our students very much enjoyed their time with you in Normandy, and they're still talking about it in the hallways. They were talking about it today as you entered the building. We look forward to having you back at McWar in the very near future. As a matter of fact, anytime you're in D.C., I hope you're going to give us a call and come back here. I'm your host, Jim Lacey. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.